seated and please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. I also have the passage for you on the insert with a short outline. We are in the middle of, well, we are at the end of the second missionary journey, about to begin the third journey. In fact, in this passage, the transfer happens. Paul is moving back after a year and a half, almost two years in Corinth. Then he's going to go all the way back a couple different sea voyages across the Mediterranean to get back to Antioch. And Antioch is where he was sent originally. That's his home church, basically. While coming from Jerusalem, it was Antioch that sent him and originally Barnabas off, and then now Silas, Timothy, they're, they're all find their home base in this strong church in Antioch in Syria. So he's ready to go back there. On his way back, he'll be able to check in with various churches that he has already visited and brought the gospel to. The church starts to be established in those places. You remember, though, on his way over in the second trip, the Holy Spirit stopped him from ministering in Asia, which would have been Ephesus. Ephesus becomes a very important early church, but he doesn't stop there on the way over in his second trip. On the way back to his home church, he stops there very briefly in the passages here. What we start to notice in this, these brief 10 verses that actually take months and months to unfold in real time, we notice some patterns emerge, some settled practices. You remember that interpreting Acts, you have to be careful. It's describing the work of the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascends to give aid to his witnesses, to make them witnesses of the gospel, and it describes what happens. We should be careful not to take... Um, a singular episode out of Acts and say, this is the norm for the church in all time. It's describing something God's doing in the book of Acts. And so, to determine if it's something that we should practice timelessly, we would then look at the epistles written connected to Acts and then decide, are these long-standing practices for the church going forward? Now, what we have happened in chapter 18 is we're starting to see some practices regularly we could start to derive some normalcy about these practices, incorporate them into the life of the church, especially if they're bolstered by the epistles. Hopefully that makes sense as you're reading and interpreting Acts. With that preface, let's now go to the passage, being reminded, I'm not just reading a book here, I'm reading God's holy word. It's inspired by God, a spirit over, superintends over the writing of it so that we can trust completely what we have before us. Acts 18, starting at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. So he's leaving Corinth now. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. By the way, that's the start of the third journey, leaving Antioch and then going back where he had come from. Back to verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, 
a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, please guide us in the study of your word. Please help us to understand what we are reading and how it should impact our lives today. Lord, we see the apostles doing the work of evangelism and discipleship. We see leaders raised up and more laborers added to your great commission work. Please compel us here at Redeemer in this local context to be so actively engaged as we see here. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every one of us here has a part to play in the growth of Christ's kingdom. Now, of course, Christ's kingdom is not like the usual kingdoms of earth that we think of. It transcends boundaries and governments and situations. Christ's kingdom is expanded when people come to know Christ personally. Christ's kingdom is expanded when Christ's church grows together in collective knowledge and understanding about Jesus and her members become effective ambassadors, as well as the church maintaining a very clear and careful outward witness. Here we are in Acts chapter 18, 20 years past the time Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to empower the disciples to be witnesses for him to the ends of the earth. 20 years later now, we're at the end of Paul's two-year-long second missionary journey. So some churches are now established. They're not brand new believers in all these places. Some still, but there are now pockets of disciples and churches that have sprung up in these various places. Paul and his team of missionaries have come and have gone. Here we are with the mission extending all the way to Greece now, and Paul is coming back to check back with his home church. Now, I'd like us to see the flow of three different activities that I believe start to mark the activity of the church. First of all, you see evangelism. It never stops. Evangelism is always going on. It's the professing or the proclaiming, the professing or proclaiming of Christ as Savior. That's, what the, evan- that's the heralding of Jesus. That's always going on wherever Paul goes and wherever the church is. But secondly, you see something more now happening as he doubles back at the places he'd already been. Now he's discipling. People who believed, he's helping them grow further. They're becoming disciples now, followers, actively engaged in growing in the one, to whom they, came, the, the one they came to know by evangelism. Then finally, you see something else happen here. There's now the multiplication of leaders. Now, when we speak of leaders in the church or laborers in the church or ministers in the church, we don't always mean the ordained variety. This could be any member of the church with special gifts of the Holy Spirit that are used to influence others in the church to lead them to be closer with Christ, to know Christ better. But we are also talking about ordained leaders in the church as we see unfold in this passage. 
evangelism, discipleship, and leadership identification or development so that this whole process can multiply. The gospel clearly proclaimed, people come to Christ, they grow in Christ, new leaders or more leaders come to labor in the message of Christ. We see it unfold here in this passage, and it will help us note this key feature, the intentional discipleship of believers and cultivating leaders. Let's start right at the beginning, verse 18, and you'll see how it always starts. It starts with the proclamation of Christ. It starts with evangelism. It starts with something that never really ends, that is evangelism. Paul's moving pretty frequently in these short verses. Um, He's leaving Corinth. He's going to go to Ephesus, to Caesarea, to Jerusalem, to Antioch, back through Galatia, to Ephesus again. Lots is happening, but don't miss the key activities that are included. He moves in a strategic way. Verse 18, after this, after this time in Corinth, he stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. He takes with him his friends who are originally from Rome. He met in Corinth, worked with them as tent makers, and now they leave together to go back to the home church. In verse 18, the second part, at Centuria he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, what's this about? Before we go further, uh, commentators love to debate what this could be, and we could do a bit of that surmising now. What's this vow reference? Well, it's most certainly a Nazarite vow of some sort, which was in the Jewish law code. It could be like a fast. It could be a time of dedication to God to focus on some aspect of life or ministry for that season of time. Um, You would abstain from alcohol. You wouldn't cut your hair for this time. It could be a period of months. When you're done with the allotted period of time or the fast is over, then you would symbolically cut your hair completely, and usually they would burn it as some kind of an offering of those months that were previous. It's not a legalism. It's not to make Jesus love you more or for some merit before God. It was a personal fast-type situation that Paul undoubtedly used. It could be that he was grateful to God to have such a long ministry in Corinth. You remember everywhere else he got ran out of town pretty quickly. But in Corinth, God worked to make the proconsul not listen to the Jewish charges, the usual Jewish charges, and actually gave him longevity over a year and a half, maybe two years in Corinth. So perhaps at some point, recognizing God's supernatural window opening for Paul to minister, maybe he made a Nazarite vow in thankfulness to God. In fact, John Stott says such vows were made either in thankfulness for past blessings, such as Paul's safekeeping in Corinth, or as part of a petition for future blessings, such as safekeeping on his upcoming third journey. We don't know for sure. It could be something simpler than that. It could just be he was doing something with a group of believers, and he was identifying with them in this way, especially after cutting his hair. Maybe that was some symbol that would allow him acceptance wherever he was going next. You know, I was thinking... Right before summer camp, Phil Taylor, our beloved youth pastor, came into my office, and he looked very scholarly. He had glasses, his hair was combed real nicely, and he left for camp. Then I saw him yesterday, he didn't have his glasses on, and he had a mohawk. His hair was a mohawk, his straightforward. I thought, maybe this is sort of like what Paul did. He was just identifying with those who he came to, and so therefore um, shaved his head. And so this is what could be a reason. It could be something uh, more profound than all that. We just don't know. Derek Thomas puts it this way, I think, in his commentary well. There are occasions, he says, following times when we have experienced the goodness of God to a remarkable degree. When we want to say with the hymn writer, 
take my life. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. So maybe it's thankfulness, and he takes this vow, cuts his hair, and then goes back towards his home church in verse 19, and they came to Ephesus. First time he's been to Ephesus. And he left them there, and he just means to, this means to say that Paul with Priscilla and Aquila come to Ephesus. They stay in Ephesus in the town proper, but he goes on, usually the outskirt of town where the synagogue would be, and it says he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Do you see how integrated evangelism is for the Apostle Paul? Wherever he goes, the first time he goes there, he brings the gospel. He hadn't been to Ephesus yet before, and so now he goes to the place he knows the best, the synagogue. And what does he do there? Now, we, we wouldn't know if it weren't for the six other times we've already seen referenced him going to the synagogue. What does he do? He goes and he takes the Old Testament scripture and he shows how Christ fulfills the picture of Messiah given in the Old Testament. And he tries to convince the Jewish listeners at first to believe on Christ. Christ is the answer to the Bible that you've been studying in the synagogue. He starts there and then it branches out from there. Um, so evangelism is the first step in everything Paul does. Now, make no mistake, he keeps repeating it because it's a message that never gets old and it's always necessary, but we see here he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, to be clear about evangelism, because we can carry some baggage with that term in American evangelicalism, evangelism does not mean an altar call or having people sign a card or raise their hand uh, come forward or make a decision. Um, that's not evangelism. Evangelism is simply the faithful proclamation of the gospel message, which is to tell people how they can be right with God through Christ and his finished work. That's evangelism. So when we evangelize, we are simply bringing to a place the message of Christ. It may have already had it. It may not have had it. It's still evangelism because you're heralding, the evangel is the heralding of the good news of the gospel. So evangelism is not just initial, it's ongoing and it never ends without apology. It's just constantly woven back in to everything we talk about. We need regrounding constantly because our usual mode is to default back into works or self-righteousness, whereas the preaching of the gospel, the proclaiming of the gospel reminds us again we cannot save ourselves. We must rest in another, in Christ for salvation. That's the proclamation of the gospel. That's evangelism. So properly understood, we should all be doing evangelism, individually even. I believe it's true that you should be proclaiming how people might be right with God. First level, in your family, with each other as husband and wife, or with parents to children. You're expressing and explaining to them how they can be right with God. I remember when my children were youngest, and I wondered how to carry this kind of thing out. I just remember telling them before they went to bed, trust in Christ, not in daddy and mommy or anything else, trust in Christ for your salvation. So evangelism is, is full-ranging, and it never stops. It keeps going on, and it's the first thing Paul does, and it's the thing that he keeps coming back to, and it should be true for us as well. You could do this with your friends. Over time, as you build relationships, it will come up, the deep issues of life, and you'll have opportunity to express how someone could be right with Christ. See, it's not grabbing anyone and twisting their arm. It's just sharing with them how they can know for certain that they're right with the God of the universe. It's not for you to, to work some kind of conviction in them or do the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can do this, but we herald the message. 
That's the activity of the apostles. It's the activity of the early church. It's commanded of us in the epistles. We see it on display in this pattern here, declaring Jesus to be the Christ. Paul didn't stay long in Ephesus. Uh, it was a short first trip. Look at verse 20. When they asked him to stay longer, they were, they were enjoying or they were engaging what he was saying. I'm sure there were some who were upset. It always happened that way for Paul, right? When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. He was clear about what God had called him to do. But on taking leave of them, verse 21, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. So he had determined he would like to come back to Ephesus, which he does in his third trip. But for now, he leaves with that initial evangelistic blast in the synagogue, Jesus is the Christ, and he moves on. So we see evangelism as this ongoing activity. Let's look at what else is ongoing. That's discipleship. Hand-in-hand with evangelism is active, intentional, ongoing, personal discipleship. A big reason for him traveling backwards along some of the same places is to check in on the churches he had already gone to first and evangelized. Now he's trying to see how the roots are growing. Are the, the disciples becoming more mature? In many of those places, the opposition had started to die down a bit so we can go back uh, without too much opposition and be able to ask questions of the believers there, see how the church, the church was developing there. He was checking on the process of discipleship, which in itself is discipleship. That's what leaders do. He encouraged them in their new walk in Christ. He reminded them of the gospel that changed their life. That's what discipleship is all about. Verse 22, when he had landed in Caesarea, the first stop, he went up and greeted the church. Now, no one here thinks he just went up and said hi and moved on. No, we get the impression that he greeted the church. Now, what that means is it's the Apostle Paul who brought the gospel. When the people see him, they're going to remember where they associate, what they associate him with. And that in itself, just his presence and his stopping in and checking in, reminds them of their commitment to Christ that they were called to through this man's ministry. Maybe you have people in your life, it could be parents, could be grandparents, or some older brother, and sister, brother or sister in the Lord, someone who is significant in your walk in Christ, with Christ in some period of your life. You don't have much contact with them anymore. Life's busy and you can't keep up with everybody. But you'll get a text. Now I have a man that about every two weeks will send me a devotional text. I was an elder in a church that I grew up in and has been a mentor of me over the years. And really the men- what I mean by mentoring is every so often drop me a note. All I need to do is see a sentence from this man, and it reminds me of what Christ has called me to. It reminds me of what Christ has done in my life, how Christ has brought people into my life, and it gives me a sense of seriousness and conviction again, or commitment in ways I need it. I hope you all have people like this in your life. That's part of discipleship. It's, it's touch points with people who are significant in your spiritual walk. I mean on the deep stuff, not just the super, superficial stuff of life. The deep stuff that defines everything else about who you are your relationship with God and Christ. And you have individuals in your life who just by their presence, just by greeting you, bring that out, remind you. That's what he does here. He goes to Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church. This is discipleship. Then he went down to his home church, Antioch. Verse 23 is actually interesting because it shows discipleship, and then he turns around and goes back on the third missionary journey. Now, why is it so brief and not such a big, not such a division between the two trips? Probably because Luke isn't there with him. He's in Philippi still. So he's just reporting back what he learns when he meets up with Paul again later. So there's 10 verses to cover maybe a year or two. At any rate, we come back to verse 23. 
after spending some time there, where? In Antioch. Spending some time. It requires time. It requires attention. After spending some time there, he departed. And then what did he do? He went from one place to the next, to the next, through the region of Galatia, moving back towards where he went in his first journey, the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, strengthening the disciples. See, that's discipleship. It's checking in with those who claim Christ, helping them to grow in Christ, hold them accountable, encourage them, correct if necessary, set back on the right path, discipleship. Spent time there, greeted them, strengthened them. Briefly, what is discipleship? I keep using this word. What is dis- I used it with the baptism, the beginning of the discipleship process is the application of the sign of the covenant. What does this mean? By definition, a disciple is a follower, one who accepts and assists in the spreading of the doctrines of another in a very cold way. A Christian disciple is a person who accepts and assists in the spreading of the good news of Christ. And by the way, it's, it's something you can't help. I mean, some of us are better evangelists than others on the basis of how I defined evangelism. But all of us at some point just want to share this. I mean, if you've really been saved from sin, death, hell, and the grave, you want to tell someone how they can avoid it too. It'll come, and you'll have opportunity, and God will give you grace. But discipleship is growing more and more in love with the Christ who saved you, care more and more about what he thinks of you than what the world thinks about you or what the culture says about you. It just becomes more important than the reaction people give you when you talk about him or when you live according to the way he's commanded. That's discipleship. That's growing in the one we're following. Christian discipleship, it's a process where disciples grow in Christ by the ministry of the Word of God through the Holy Spirit's agency. Discipleship is knowing Christ. It's learning to follow Christ's teaching. It's becoming fruitful in Christ by personally multiplying with others. And that could start your immediate sphere with your family, and it goes on to your church family, and then beyond, however the Lord gives you opportunity. How are disciples strengthened? The primary tool for discipleship is God's Word. Part of why we recited those particular questions out of the shorter catechism is to remind us what the means of the tools of God's grace are for us. The Word of God is the primary one. We know from the Word of God that we have access to the throne of grace through prayer, so we go to God and pray. That's why it's a means of grace. It grows our faith. It grows us as disciples. The Word of God teaches us that. The Word of God also lets us know what baptism and the Lord's Supper are and how they, they visibly teach us the message of the gospel so we're bolstered that way too. That's why the Word and the sacraments are considered tools or means of God's grace of discipleship. So the church is responsible for being careful to minister the Word and the sacraments to the congregation. The congregation, in turn, is responsible to grow and be discipled under the Word, and then in your own life, part of the model for preaching for you, hopefully, I hope it does this, is give you an idea of how to interpret it for yourself, so you're not dependent on the preacher. Um, You learn how to do Bible study, Bible interpretation, so you do it on your own and in your homes. Um, You're able to handle the Word in a way that is honoring to God and will help you grow spiritually. That's how we are strengthened as disciples. Far more could be said, but you understand what I'm saying. How are you discipling others? There's a good question for us. As grandparents, parents, peers, brothers and sisters, how are we discipling others? All of us should be looking upward to someone more mature than us in the faith and learning to grow from them and then 
looking to people that are newer in the faith and helping them walk. It's constantly that, that's the way a healthy church will work. No one's at the same level. By God's grace, wherever we are, but we're always trying to reach up or reach down to help grow and disciple. This is the outward look. Evangelism, discipleship go hand in hand in the life of the church, in the activities of the apostles. Should be true for all of us. Some of you in the phase of life where you've just got a lot of little, little hands reaching out to you right now, that's where you disciple. That's where you teach. That's, that's where you guide and direct. And look for help with that in the community. We, we help each other this way. What I love about this church that I've discovered in my own life multiple times is there's not so much pride among those who are older in the faith as they won't admit to you areas they would have done different. Younger people, take that. If someone says to you, you know, this happened in our life and they're open with you about it, listen to that. There are so many instances I could tell you, but I'll never forget when I was early in the ministry, I'd just become the senior pastor and I was here very late and I had small children at home. And one of the deacons was working late. He was the treasurer at the time. And he came into my office and he told me a very heartfelt story about regrets, about not having spent more time with his children at that stage of his life. He said, you go home. But I got a sermon. Go home. Okay, those people speaking to your life are gold. I mean, that they'll tell you they're not so, they're, they're humble enough to admit things that they didn't get when they were walking through it, which by the way, there's a ton of all of it for all of us. You'll be able to, in another phase of your life, look back at it and, and share. That's discipleship. That's, that's being humble with one another, transparent with one another, wanting everyone to grow in Christ and sharing in love these things. We see it unfold in the life of the early church believers. It's only in cursory, a cursory way that we see, but we dig in deeper and we can understand how this time spent with these saints in Antioch and then the places he goes place to place, we see the discipleship unfold, strengthening the disciples. Now, I want you to see something finally in the passage that we really for the first time get a picture now of the multiplying of leadership in the church. To this point, it's been so new. Evangelism's been the main activity. Discipleship's now introduced. And now this necessary final component that has to happen in the life of the local church and in the church universal. Leaders have to be identified and mobilized. Uh, leaders of all sorts, ordained leaders as well as servant leaders, within, all servant leaders, but could be local church leaders in various capacities, um, using your gifts to help lead others in the church in probably a more formal way um, to grow in their walk with Christ. And we see that unfold in the passage right before our eyes. Very intentionally, there is leadership development going on. Verse 18, back at verse 18, Paul stayed many days longer. Now look what he does. Then he took leave of the brothers. He set sail for Syria. And with him, what did he do? He brought Priscilla and Aquila. These are his brothers and sisters, brother and sister in Christ from Rome who were in Corinth. They're tent makers. He worked with them. The church starts to develop in Corinth. Then he takes them to Ephesus. In his mind, these are two leaders. They're communal leaders, Christian leaders that can help with the establishment of the church in a more official way in Ephesus. He leaves them in Ephesus and he goes on back to the home church. Um, right there, though, is a picture of identifying people that could be ministers to others and utilizes them in this fashion. We don't really read of them as quote-unquote ordained leaders, but they are definitely communal leaders, Christians who are mature and needed when the church starts at Ephesus. Later, when Paul's writing um, to the Romans, he says, please greet Prisca, which is short for Priscilla, Pre please greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risk their necks for my life. We don't know exactly what he means, 
but we know they work closely together. They're in a discipleship relationship, and they stuck their necks out. That's literally what it says in the Greek for Paul at some point. Later, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, he says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you greetings in the Lord. Remember, they spent time in Corinth. They went to Ephesus. From Ephesus, he writes to the Corinthians. He says, Prisca and Aquila greet you. Hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So we see this uh, development of leadership and then the mobilizing of it in the church at Ephesus. Now, what I want you to really pay attention to is verse 24 and the following, and you see a specific leadership identification and nurturing that's so important for the local church and the church in the larger level to be about. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Now, Paul was already gone back to Antioch. Apollos comes from North Africa. That's where Alexandria is. Second only to Athens as it relates to the great universities or intellectual pursuits of the, of the world would be Alexandria. He had the biggest library in the world, and this man lived there and was no doubt educated there. He comes to Ephesus. Now look what it says about him. It's very intriguing. He was eloquent, I'm in verse 24, he was an eloquent man, he spoke well, a great orator, could communicate very clearly, competent in the scriptures, mighty in the scriptures as it says in some passages. He's able to speak well and he's competent in the word of God. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, we don't get the impression that he gets the full picture yet. He's a Jewish man who studied the Old Testament. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. And look what it says, and being fervent in the Spirit, that means he was fiery. Not necessarily the Holy Spirit yet, it's just he's fiery in his being. He spoke and taught accurately things concerning Jesus. Now, we should surmise that he had the Old Testament understood it. Like many of the Jews of the day who did not draw the parallel about the Messiah being a person who would come to save them from their sins, most Jews thought it was about the nation of Israel being a suffering servant that God would vindicate by making them earthly, an earthly kingdom again. They misunderstood the Old Testament. Apollos seems to get that the person of Christ is in view or the person of Messiah is in view. So he gets the Old Testament accurately about Messiah, but we don't gather he grasps Jesus himself at this point. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately things concerning Jesus. He didn't say, preach Jesus. Please notice the particulars there. Though he knew only the baptism of John, which was what? Repentance to prepare for Christ's coming. So he's almost there. I mean, he's just ready. He's, he's clearly got the gifts and the abilities to be used of the Lord for the mission. Look what he does. He goes to the synagogue. He's on to something, so he wants to go to the synagogue. Paul's already been there. Verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and please pay close attention to this, brothers and sisters, as we look towards encouraging people in ministry, young ministers or people who are interested or just starting, younger than you may be, haven't done it before. Um, this is good for all of us in the church, especially good for those of us who have a hand in really walking with uh, young men who are going into ministry. I love what this says because it was true in my own life, and it's probably the reason why I'm not a heap or I didn't quit by now. What it says now, it's very subtle, but don't miss it. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, so they heard him teaching, they weren't complete, he wasn't completely clear on Christ, Priscilla and Aquila heard him. So what did they do? What did he do when he heard them probably not preaching exactly right? 
they took to Twitter right away and blasted him, right? Or got on Facebook and let him know how bad their past. That's not what Priscilla and Aquila do. This is so blessed what you have here. This is called spiritual maturity and discipleship. Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside. They took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. I can't tell you how important this is for the development of ministers, of people who labor for the, in the Word, who labor in the ministry, for your children, for anyone else who wants to serve Christ, that we would be patient, that we wouldn't blast in public, that we would give time and we would recognize the Spirit's work and we would be careful to not crush someone in letting them know, hey, there's a lot of good things going on in your life. The Lord is doing something. But let me tell you, there's something you're off on. And be clear, we need to tell them they're off on it. I cannot tell you how many times this church has been patient with me. When I was 24 and I came here, with all due respect to the 24-year-olds in the house who were far more mature than I was, I lacked a bit of polish. Unlike the supremely polished individual you see now. <laughs> I'm under no illusion. It was the combination of a wonderful wife and patient elders that I still stand here 22, three years later. Still for those two reasons, by the way. And I tell young ministers in the life of a church, you can go to seminary and you should. I've gone to plenty of it and I've got great professors. I love them all. But you'll learn more from your ruling elders about ministry than you'll learn from any professor. You'll learn more from the older ladies in the church than you will learn from about anybody else. I remember when I was preaching uh, right out of college, I thought I was all ready to go. I was going to take on the world. And I, my home church uh, back in Grand Island asked me, the one that Nathan went to for a while as a minister, asked me to preach. And I got up there and preached away and thought it was really great, which is the first problem with your assessment of your preaching. But at any rate, I got done, and an aged pastor's wife, retired pastor, came up to me, pulled me aside, and she gave me a deep doctrinal insight that I was off on. And she did it with very careful gentleness, and it it stopped me forever in my preparations to think more carefully before I go out and say whatever I'm going to say. Didn't blast me in public, had all opportunity to do that, but Priscilla and Aquila heard him, heard Apollo speaking, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What happened because of that? Apollos became one of the most important early church leaders that was an apostle himself, in history, Luther thinks Apollos wrote Hebrews. We'll find out someday. Verse 27, when he wished to cross Achaia, to Achaia, he wanted to go preach. Now that he knew Christ, he understood the fullness of the gospel, he wanted to go to cross Achaia and preach. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. I love this, this this mobilizing of a leader, a new young leader. It's sort of like in Presbytery where in a couple weeks we have a Presbytery meeting. There's three young men in three different churches who are all seeking in different levels of ordination. One of them just wants to come under care to start the process. And so his elders write, write a note to the rest of the Presbyters and say, this young man is ready to start pursuing ministry. Now we need this because he's a young man and you don't know really where he is in his walk. But his elders who know him better, they say, they say to the rest of us, you can, you can take it from us. This guy is someone that should start pursuing, pursue the process of ministry and sends us a letter to this, to this end. Back to the passage. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome where he was going, to the disciples. So the people are already believers. This is key. He's a pastor. There are evangelists who are purely about evangelism and they move on. Then there are, all pastors should be evangelists, but pastor evangelist is what Apollos is. That's probably more what I'm called to be. 
He wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So he goes into an established place where they needed to go from point A in growth to point B and on. And that's what pastors generally shepherd the flock concerning. That's what they do. That's the main role of the pastor or the elder of the church. I say pastor meaning interchangeable with elders. That's our role is to help believers keep continue to grow in their faith, preach the gospel, but help believers grow to get more mature. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. He was able to make defense, showing by the scriptures that, that the Christ was Jesus. So, in quick summary, you see evangelism, discipleship, leader identification, leader, leadership development, all these things working to perpetuate the cycle of growth for the church so that the kingdom may expand. And it's quite, it, quite apart from what might be happening in the world. It can get depressing about the way the world is. Or, but the church still has this same calling and method that God gives to it. It will be more difficult at certain times, but it's still the same as we rely upon the means of grace that God has given us. The message of the gospel growth in that message for a lifetime and discipleship, and the perpetuating of leadership that assures these other two things keep happening. You know, the mission of our church, Redeemer, that is, is very simple for a reason. It's listed on your bulletin. I put it there every week. We have it there on our website. It's something that is so simple. It may, it's so simple that it's startling when you start to add it or compare it to the apostolic ministry. We're, our mission is to mature as a community of believers who love to worship their God study his word, and proclaim the gospel to the world. They're not three different things that we take one, pick one to the expense of the other. It's meant as a whole. To mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and proclaim Jesus. Proclaim Christ to the world. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, please guide our church. Please give us a heart or a growing heart and commitment for evangelism. Please give us a constant desire for spiritual growth in Christ, an unquenchable desire until we see him again. Lord, please raise up ministry leaders and servant leaders in our midst for service here and anywhere else you may call them. Help us to be supportive of any effort to train and disciple, raise up more leaders so that your church can be well-equipped mature and able to proclaim the name of Christ everywhere. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.